Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome to today's RSA online event. I'm Madhumita Mergia. I'm the European Technology Correspondent at the Financial Times, and I'm delighted to have the chance to talk today to Susie Allegre about her new book, Freedom to Think, The Long Struggle to Liberate Our Minds. Susie is a leading human rights barrister at the internationally renowned Doughty Street Chambers and is a legal pioneer in digital human rights. Susie is a senior research fellow at the University of Roehampton and her book Freedom to Think is a fascinating look at the fight to protect free thought both through key moments in history and in the face of the threat posed today by the all-powerful influence of the internet. It tackles the complex issues of privacy and autonomy and asks what human rights should look like in this new digital age. So lots to get involved with. If those of you watching along would like to join the conversation about the event on Twitter, you're more than welcome to do so using the hashtag RSA Freedom or here in our YouTube chat. Susie, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. So I've been reading your book kind of drinking it up over the last week or so um, and have really, really enjoyed it because for me, it's this completely new lens. So I've reported on many of these companies and many of the kind of examples you very skillfully take us through. Um, but I really love the, the, the lens that you've applied to it and the expertise that you kind of come with. And I wondered if, you know, we can start actually by asking you to set the writing of this book within the context of your wider work and your career. Uh, really, you know, interested in what led you to write this book right now um, and how the conversation around human rights, particularly in the digital sphere, has changed um, in, in your work recently. Absolutely. And it's a real pleasure to be here and to, to meet you, Madhu, because I'm a great admirer of your work as well. Um, and so, yeah, to talk a little bit about where I came from, I mean, I've been a, a human rights lawyer and a barrister now for about 25 years, and most of my work has been in the international sphere. And I suppose I started out in international human rights law, you know, working for justice in 2001, the end of 2001, so just after 9-11, when counter-terrorism was really the big driving factor sort of globally, politically. And so a lot of my work um, in that period and, and over the decades that followed was about human rights and security. So I landed up doing quite a lot of work about privacy and data protection and surveillance and looking at the ways um, that we need to sort of protect our, our inner lives in that drive for security and how do we balance the need for security and protecting our lives in the sort of context of counterterrorism with our freedoms. But what it was that I suppose shifted me into writing this book was quite far from counterterrorism. It was reading about Cambridge Analytica in the aftermath of the EU referendum. And bearing in mind, as I say, I've been an international lawyer for 25 years. I trained in the European Commission. I trained in, in the Council of Europe. An awful lot of my work was Europe related. And so the, the referendum marked a huge shift uh, for me personally and professionally. And so reading about Cambridge Analytica and the use of what's called political behavior or micro-targeting potentially in the lead up to the referendum was a real light bulb moment. 
understanding that whether or not it worked, these services were being sold that were designed to get inside our heads, anyone really on Facebook, including myself, to get inside our heads, understand what made us tick, and then use that information and use those platforms to manipulate potentially how we thought in order to influence elections was to me something so sort of fundamentally shocking that it seemed to go far beyond privacy and data protection. And we saw a lot of discussions about um, electoral finance or data protection breaches. And I thought, well, this isn't about the data. This is about our minds and this is about our right to freedom of thought. And when I first started looking around to find out, well, are, you know, are challenges available? Are people talking about this? I found very little. I found one article about the right to freedom of thought in the context of developments in neuroscience, but absolutely nothing about this bigger context of the way our data is being used to understand us, make inferences about how we're thinking and feeling and use that uh, to manipulate us. And so I, I started writing about it. I wrote my first article in 2017 um, called Rethinking the Right to Freedom of Thought. And I suppose before the publication of that article, I kept on thinking, I must be getting this wrong. I must be missing something here. But the more I looked into it, the more people said, yes, you're right. And that actually this is absolutely, it's about the freedom inside our heads. And that is where we need to be looking at and, and protecting for our future engagement with technology in, in a huge amount of spheres from the security sphere that I was more familiar with through my previous work to you know issues like seeing my daughter engaging with technology you know on online games to my own engagements with, with social media and the sort of the drive that I find difficult to resist to check my Twitter feed every five minutes and sort of pushing back on all of those things I found it touched every bit of my life and, and every bit of our society. Yeah, this is fascinating because I started reporting on data brokers in about 2013 and at the time, you know, and they still are sort of a shadowy ecosystem. It's it's not as obvious as the Facebooks and the Twitters who and Google were collecting our data in a more kind of consumer facing way. And um, when I wrote this piece kind of digging into what they knew about me and trying to rebuild my own profile, I found that the thing most people pushed back with was, as you said, you know, often people would say this is just advertising. They're showing us products. Why does it matter? You know, why does it matter? And another thing you talk about in your book is why does it matter if I have nothing to hide? or if this doesn't hurt me in any way and it's just a bit of harmless advertising um, but the thing I was kind of trying to push at and what you talk more about in your book is that it's not just <clears throat> about showing us things we don't want or need but about predicting what's going on in our heads right um, and so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that kind of philosophical question of what does it mean to have freedom of thought um, you know, given that obviously there's constantly things bombarding us that influence us in the outside world. But what does it mean to have thought that's free enough? And why does it matter in the context of if we have nothing to hide or if something doesn't actively hurt us? Yeah, well, I think when you look at the, the history of freedom of thought, particularly the way the drafters were looking at the right to freedom of thought, and bearing in mind that the first sort of codification that we have, legal codification, it's in the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, followed by the European Convention on Human Rights um, and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. 
And the people drafting the right to freedom of thought were doing that against the backdrop of, you know, Nazi Germany, against the backdrop of, of sort of devastation of propaganda, um, and also against the backdrop of, you know, the rise of communism and surveillance state, if you like, uh, in East Germany, in, in the Soviet Union. And so they were feeling this threat very much in a real sense. And we can see that as well through Orwell's 1984, which I you know, read at the beginning of lockdown and was sort of horrified at how prescient it was. But Orwell was really writing right at the heart of that time when people understood that there was a threat to our freedom of thought. And so what the drafters of international law were talking about when they spoke about freedom of thought, they were coming at it from very different uh, perspectives. Some of them were looking at it as something to do with the human spark, if you like, and, and, and the idea of a soul alongside religion and belief was, was a sort of more fundamental idea of, of thought and, and opinion, potentially political opinion. Others were coming at it from the perspective of science and saying, well, this is a way of reflecting um, as the Soviet Union put it, you know, protecting the martyrs of science as strongly as protecting the martyrs of religion um, down the years. But what it means in practice, there's sort of two aspects to the right. There's an external aspect to thought or opinion, and that's about you saying what you think or acting on what you think or manifesting your religion belief. And that external aspect of the right can be limited because that has impacts on other people. Once you start acting on what you're thinking, you're having real world impacts that affect the rights of other people. And so those aspects of the right can be limited. But what I'm writing about is the inner part of the right, this right to freedom inside your head. And that is protected absolutely in, in international human rights law. Most rights aren't, as I said, right to private life, the right to express yourself can be limited in order to protect the rights of others, to protect public health, um, to protect national security and various other reasons. But this right to freedom inside your head can never ever be interfered with according to international human rights law. But what does an interference look like? The drafters again considered what an interference might be. And we've seen how that's developed to really have three layers of protection or three issues. The first is the right to keep your thoughts private, to not reveal your thoughts to others, to choose what you decide to share from what's going on inside your head. And I'm sure all of us have had thoughts that we wouldn't want other people knowing we have, however fleeting they might be. You know, sharing your thoughts and choosing what you want to share with the world is also key to keeping yourself safe. You know, whether in social or, or political circumstances where expressing yourself and saying everything you think might well put you in danger. And freedom of expression is really about gauging what it is you want to share. The second part is this right not to have your thoughts manipulated. And that goes to the question that you raised that, you know, of course, we're all being influenced by each other all the time. So what is the line between lawful influence and reasonable influence and unlawful manipulation? And at the moment, because this area of law hasn't been very developed, it's difficult to say exactly where that line is. But I suppose as a, as a rule of thumb, you know, if something feels really viscerally wrong, then it's probably the wrong side of that line. And we have seen the European Court of Human Rights looking at this question in relation to religion and saying, you know, there's a difference between preaching 
and brainwashing in the sort of religious sphere. And I suppose that's where the line might be in relation to thought. And the third aspect of the right to freedom of thought is not to be penalised for your thoughts alone. And this goes back to that question about, well, how accurate are these inferences being made? Well, the drafters of human rights will recognise that in some ways it doesn't really matter how accurate they are, that being penalised for inferences about what you're thinking is itself a violation of the right to freedom of thought. And when I looked at some of the historical examples, I think perhaps the best example to show why this matters is, you know, if you are accused of being a witch and the witch finder decides you're a witch based on inferences about your black hat and your wart and your suspicious behaviour, doesn't matter what you actually think and believe, you're still going to be burned at the stake for being a witch. And that's what we see in terms of inferences being made from our data about what kind of person we are. You might still find yourself being picked up by the police because you're deemed to be a suspicious person. You might still find that you can't get insurance or a mortgage because your data indicates that you're somehow a risky person who's not capable of being trusted, even if you've never actually done anything that anyone can point to as a reason for those decisions. So that's why inferences, whether or not they're right, are as much of a threat to our freedom of thought as people who actually can potentially read or technology that can actually read what's going on inside our heads. And what about the question of, uh, of if you have nothing to hide, then it shouldn't matter, which is also something you talk about in when you talk about surveillance and facial recognition. Um, you know, sh how does the right, how is the right exercised in that context? Is it okay to track people and try and figure out what they're doing or who they are if they think they have nothing to hide or do you um, believe that there too everybody has a, that right to um, their own private thoughts? Um, I suppose it goes back to that question of the absolute protection so it depends what the tracking is, is for. If the tracking is to find out who you are on the inside and not just what you're doing then I think that is in itself problematic and the question of of not having something to hide. I mean, it was something that in the privacy context really struck me. Um, I remember going to a meeting at the Council of Europe about 15 years ago and listening to um, data protection supervisors from around Europe talking about their experiences. And that's when it suddenly became really clear to me why you know privacy is a gateway right and privacy as a gateway to your soul and your inner workings I suppose is so vital and if you think about it you know one of the examples I used in the book for example sexual orientation there'd been research and researchers um, in the US who claimed a few years ago that they could identify sexual orientation from uh, machine learning and running an analysis of people's photographs to decide what their sexual orientation was with I think it was around an 80% accuracy. The researchers said that they you know, did this research to show how dangerous this technology potentially is to push for you know, regulation and legislation to control it. If you think about sexual orientation, you know, if you go on you know, online dating, you go and you fill out your profile, the kind of person you're looking for is an indication of your sexual orientation. And this information is the kind of information, a lot of information on online dating profiles were used to train the machines that the researchers used to identify sexual orientation. Well, when you're you know, online dating, 
you might well think, well, of course, it doesn't matter whether I'm straight or gay. I'm trying to find somebody, you know, that I want to, to date. I've got nothing to hide. You know, I'm confident in my sexual orientation. This is all perfect. But there are, you know, two reasons why that can be problematic. Firstly, you can't tell how the world might change. You can't tell how the political situation might change and that there may be a point where actually it's dangerous for your sexual orientation to be shared or you don't want it to be shared uh, for whatever reason. And if you think then of technology being trained on your dating profile so that when you go through the, um, the immigration control in a country where being gay is illegal, may well land you up in prison, may well even carry a death penalty, and that the facial recognition technology at the immigration control is going to make a judgment about your sexual orientation, then you get a sense of how dangerous potentially this is, and why this idea that I've got nothing to hide, that may be true in one context, it's not true in another, and I think you Put, the, put your finger on it in this question of data brokers, is that you have no idea where this information lands up. Uh, and another example that happened actually after I wrote, wrote the book um, was a, um, a US Catholic priest being outed um, in the media based on data that was able to be bought on the open market, including his use of dating apps, his geolocation data and various other bits of data that he probably didn't even realize were out there that he was leaving on the open market in order to be able to identify him as gay and result in him standing down as a Catholic priest. So I think it's all about context. And in this sort of big data cesspit, if you like, we don't have context and we never know where it's gonna land up. Mm. Um, you've given some really chilling and interesting examples of, of what this looks like in, in our digital reality. Um, and I want to kind of ask you to, to compare. So you've laid out really brilliantly. You've kind of you have these two sections of the book. One is looking at the, you know, um, organizations and powerful um, parties and people who have um, you know, influenced us his, in history, over history. And then you've got the second half of the book that looks at, you know, that in a technology-mediated context. So I'm curious what's, what you think is different um, or more concerning or kind of more urgent about data-driven technologies that we're seeing today compared to what, how we were influenced in the past. I suppose, I mean, there, there are lots of differences. One of them is that it's very much personalized. So, you know, historically propaganda or advertising for tobacco, you know, was a broad brush approach to dominating uh, a society by dominating information streams or using sort of cultural pegs, if you like, to, for example, encourage women to smoke because smoking is all about women's liberation these kind of things, but they were very broad brush. What we're looking at now is absolutely targeted. It's about nudging us as individuals. It's about knowing us as individuals and controlling us as individuals. And another thing that's really changed, I suppose, is that it's affecting all of us in every single bit of our lives. So while historically you might have, for example, pushed back against the regime and it was about government-driven control, now 
it, it's potentially about the control of lots of different private sector actors, some of them who we may know about, you know, the big names like Facebook and Google, but also, as you've said, there are many big companies that are involved in these activities that we are not even aware of and don't really understand how they're happening. That makes it very difficult to challenge. It makes it difficult to challenge um, as an individual, particularly when you're unaware of it. And, and, you know, I think as I outlined in the book today, and, and you know, I, I, what's in the book is about a third of the examples that I found as I was going. It's like, oh God, I've got to cut bits out. I've got to choose which bits I'm going to keep in because it was just everywhere. Uh, this attempt to understand and influence us or judge what's going on inside our heads, not how we're behaving sort of explicitly or what we're saying explicitly, whether it's through, you know, deciding whether or not you're going to get a job, you know, automated interview systems and algorithmic CV screening, whether it's about how your shopping is being used to decide whether or not you're worthy of insurance or, or security risk. All of this interconnectedness, I think, is, is really different. So it's not necessarily about what people wanted to do being different. It's about the all-pervasive nature of it. And also the fact that, you know, we're consenting to a lot of it. We're being lulled into a false sense of security by, by convenience and by techniques that are designed to keep us hooked on our machines. And so Whereas previously it might have been about curbing the power of the state, now it's about asking the state in certain cases to curb the power of private companies to influence and manipulate and read us. Mm. That that's fascinating. Actually, this is something I was thinking about and and have been uh, when I was reading your book, but also as I've covered these things. So it started, you know, collecting data about everybody as a way to characterize each of us and then push things to us, right? But and then you know it moved on to being to predicting what we would do uh, based on who we were. Um, but what I think is really, you know, fascinating now with AI being overlaid on top of this whole thing is that it, it, it can actually not just predict what we're going to do, but nudge, as you said, nudge us and influence us and actually present us choices or fewer choices than we would have in the real world, right? So it's actually filtering our reality um, rather than just predicting what we would do and therefore making us behave in certain ways. Um, and I kind of saw this as a loss of free will in a way. And so lots of the examples that you've talked about, meant, you know, you, you've touched on that when it comes to, you know, what jobs you get to see or what mortgage rates are being advertised to you. You know, you don't have the, the will to exercise, to decide what job to apply for, you know, which home to, to rent. And so what is, do you think, the ultimate endpoint if we are seeding more and more of these choices and ability to prefer to companies and, you know, who are deciding this for us? Where do, does that end up, you know, do you think as a society? Um, and what, you know, what does the law need to do to kind of stop that? from occurring? Well, I think it, you know, it diminishes creativity and the ability for innovation in many ways. And we're now seeing technologists, people like Tim Cook at Apple, actually was talking about the freedom to be human. I mean, when he talks about freedom to be human, I think he's essentially talking about this right to freedom of thought. 
Um, but one of the challenges I found, and when I first started talking about this, talking to you know, friends with technologists who would initially just say, well, we don't have free will anyway. Science says we don't have free will. So we don't have freedom of thought. And my kind of answer to that, which is the sort of de deterministic argument that we just have to get with the program, that this is it, this is the future of humanity. You know, we have to understand that we're not free. My argument is that actually part of that equation is that as humanity, we have decided to be free. We have decided that we have a right to freedom of thought and that this is something fundamental to our humanity. And so the law can step in and guarantee that right to freedom of thought. Whether, you know, technically we can be manipulated doesn't mean that the law should allow us to be manipulated or that technology should be allowed to develop in ways that manipulate us. Rather, it means that we need to put up guardrails and say, actually, no, you can't do this. Doesn't matter that you can. Um, you know, there are so many ways that the law prevents us from doing things that we might otherwise do. You know, the fact that we have laws preventing us from assaulting each other, preventing us from killing each other. You know, that is the point of the law is to allow us to create the societies that we want and to prevent the kind of harms that undermine our, our humanity and our dignity. And so I feel that we've almost been blindsided by these developments. They've happened in a really incremental way without us necessarily noticing what this fundamental problem is. And that was one of the reasons, as you're talking about it in, in free will sense, that was the same sort of light bulb moment for me was that actually this is about freedom of thought. And that's why looking at it from this legal perspective, having this absolute right, which says actually we need to look at what are the things that are clearly a violation of the right to freedom of thought. And those are the things that actually we just have to ban. We have to make it clear that those things are never going to be okay. And that if we do that, we can maybe reroute technological development. And I think one of the things that, that Tim Cook talks about again is that, you know, if Silicon Valley had been born in the current environment, it would never have been able to develop because innovation would have been squashed by the very tech that has developed. And so that is a wake up call, I think, both you know, for technologists as well as for those of us coming at it from a human rights perspective. It's not just a, about human rights, it's about the future of technology as well. Yeah, and um, I thought it was really fascinating that the, the um, conceptual shift that you have in the book. So you talked about um, all of these ethics principles um, and how, you know, all the companies have come up with their own guidelines about various sort of how what ethical behaviours they should follow. And similarly, so have civil society organisations, governments, everybody's come up, come up with these lists. But you've kind of said that we should be couching the issue in terms of international human rights rather than just ethics can you can you kind of talk us through that shift a little bit you know how does that shift illuminate what's at stake and how you know how can that then protect these freedoms better yeah i mean i think if we go back to as i said the, the birth of international human rights law in in the 40s and 50s and if we look at for example the european convention on human rights which was you know, essentially a brainchild of Winston Churchill, that we needed this legally enforceable charter of human rights to ensure peace uh, and democracy in Europe. And the legal enforceability of human rights is what makes them different from ethical principles. And so one of the ways 
I think it's useful to think about human rights is that they are ethics with teeth. You know, human rights reflect ethical principles. Of course they do. You know, you can't have human rights without ethics. But what human rights law does is make those ethical principles enforceable. And going back to, to what I said at the start about 9-11 and that, you know, big shift societally, I think 9-11 really sort of undermined the way we think about human rights I mean, in the UK, but also far beyond the UK, obviously in the US and, and around the world, that suddenly there was this narrative that human rights prevent our governments from keeping us safe. But actually what human rights are designed for is both to oblige our governments to keep us safe, but also to put limits on what governments can do. So of course governments chafe at the bit when they're being told that actually, no, sorry, you can't do that because it's a violation of human rights. But when you look at the history and where that came from, it's precisely to protect us as human beings from the state and also to make sure that the state protects us from each other. What we've seen though since 9-11 with this sort of monstering of human rights in the media, in politics, and the use of technology to provide more security. Like there's been definitely a way that technology has been sort of given a free pass because it can help in that security directive. We've lost our compass on what human rights are for and why they should matter to all of us. And we see that obviously at, at the moment in, in the UK and the debates around human rights. There's always these flashpoints where human rights are about foreigners, they're about criminals, they're about terrorists. But actually we need these, we need human rights. We need the human rights that we need legally enforceable human rights and international human rights to make sure that our governments do their best for us and don't overreach uh, their powers. But in the tech space, it's as if law and human rights have been put into a basket of things that restrict innovation. But as I said earlier, one of the reasons why I think freedom of thought is such an important lens to look at this from is that actually if we lose our right to freedom of thought, that will really stifle innovation. That will make innovation and creativity absolutely impossible. So, um I'm really interested because you're, you're talking a lot about governments and citizens in the context of human rights, but, um, you know, as Shoshana Zuboff has called, you know, said repeatedly, this is surveillance capitalism, actually, this entire industry, this entire, um, pra these practices have been industrialized and privatized, right? So, um, I'm, I, I'm, I, I don't know the answer to this at all. And I'm really curious, how does human rights how does human rights protect us when it comes to private companies doing things that traditionally it would be governments doing? Um, and, you know, how do we then enforce it uh, against these, re you know, these companies that are so powerful that in many cases people find that think they're even more powerful than governments around the world? Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex question. Um, Human rights are about, as I say, restricting governments, but they also put these positive obligations on governments, and that is to put laws in place to protect us and to protect our rights. 
And one of the examples that I used um, in the book to sort of demonstrate how this positive obligation works was a case against Romania, where a woman was attacked by wild dogs and ultimately uh, was severely injured um, and died within a few years. And a case was brought to the European Court of Human Rights saying Romania failed to protect her right to physical integrity um, within her right to private life because they knew they had a wild dog problem and they did nothing to stop it. And that case was one. So the, the European Court of Human Rights found that to protect an individual's right to private life, the government had an obligation to deal with the wild dog problem that it knew existed. And so if you look at that in terms of, you know, the wild dogs of big tech, it's very clear now, you know, we've got huge amounts of information. You know, the examples I've included in my book, all the reporting that you've been doing for years, it's impossible for any government to say that they don't know what the dangers are. And so human rights law puts this obligation on them to take action to regulate effectively. And the other thing that it does is mean that the way that our laws are applied need to be interpreted in light of human rights. So if you look at things like um, the GDPR or data protection legislation, it's not only about data protection, it's about privacy, but it also needs to be read in the UK in light of all the rights in the Human Rights Act, which include the right to freedom of thought. So when you're interpreting how to apply data protection legislation, you need to consider that wider human rights platform. So it's about the way that governments regulate and legislate and protect us from private companies and from, from corporate entities. The other thing about human rights and sort of protecting human rights is it doesn't necessarily have to be a law that has the right to freedom of thought written in the title. It can be about what it, what it does. And so another example that I gave was where we look at subliminal advertising, for example, and that when that was posited as a great idea that you could have images flashed at you on the screen while you're in the cinema, uh, encouraging you to go out and buy a fizzy drink in the break without you even realizing that you've seen the images so that your you know, movie viewing wouldn't be bothered by annoying adverts. It was recognized by regulators around the world that this was something so potentially dangerous and so open to manipulation of entire populations that it was banned in Europe. It's still you know, open to discussion as to whether or not it even works, but it is banned uh, in Europe. And that's an example of regulators taking something which I think would have very clearly been a violation of the right to freedom of thought and just saying it's banned, even if they don't give that as the reason for it. So there are ways that the law can protect us without it having to necessarily say, this is a right to freedom of thought law, if you like. And mm -hmm. um, that's something you mentioned there I wanted to pick up on, which is how you characterize this shift from saying, we talk a lot about within human rights about privacy. Um, and often that doesn't translate um, as, you know, people kind of view privacy in very different ways and it means different things to different people but really we should be looking at the use and manipulation of data in the freedom of thought context rather than purely privacy um i i really liked looking you know liked that shift because often i find it difficult when you're reporting about privacy because people 
attach judgments to that. Um, and um, so can you tell me a little bit about where, how you think it would change the way laws were enacted or the way the press would interpret things? You know, how would it change the public discussion around uh, date, you know, data use if we mm -hmm. moved from talking about it as a privacy issue to a freedom issue? Well, privacy is, as I said earlier, a limited right. So what that means is you have the right to private life, but it can be limited as long as you've got a legal reason for it and it's necessary and proportionate for national security purposes or public health. And, you know, we've seen it in, in the context of the pandemic that our privacy and in some ways our liberty has been limited based on a justification of public health. So when you're talking about privacy and data protection, you then start looking at, well, how can it be limited? How far, what, what can you do? Whereas if we look at privacy as a gateway right to this core right to freedom of thought that's absolutely protected, then you start kind of going beyond and saying, well, there are certain things that actually you can never do. And it's not about proportionality. It's not about how you're doing it. It's that actually the goal is something that you can never be allowed to do. So going back to that, political behavioral micro-targeting example. Well, if you look at the question of our data for political purposes being used by political parties to understand our emotions and profile us so that we can then be targeted and influenced in a very personalized way. You know, I would say that that is extracting our thoughts and feelings without us necessarily wanting to give them away because it's not, it's not in me writing something on my Facebook feed. It's, as you know, it's in the metadata. It may be in the things I don't click, that how long I look at things, what time I'm accessing what device, all of those kind of things give information about me as a person that I'm not even aware that I'm giving away. And to use that then to manipulate me for um, political ends. And so if you look at it from a freedom of thought perspective, instead of from a data protection perspective, then you just have to say that actually you just can't do that. You can't do political behavioral microtargeting. You can't use data in this way in a political context ever. And it's not about, you know, the detail of compliance. It's just about actually that's not allowed. And the Spanish Constitutional Court, when they were looking at a law similar to the kind of laws that we have in the UK to allow political parties to profile and target based on personal data. They looked at it both from a privacy perspective, but also from an ideological freedom perspective. And they found that in Spain, under the Spanish constitution, it was unlawful. In the UK, it's still lawful. It's still lawful for any political party to be profiling and targeting us in this way. Cambridge Analytica is gone, but political behavioral micro-targeting in the UK and many other countries has not gone away at all. Yeah, so, I mean, you you talk, you actually talk quite a bit about, and I guess this is part of your expertise and interest, about the um, the political implications of, um, of today's digital technology online. And I, I wonder if um, you would want, you, you can get into that a little bit more, you know, what are, do you think that obviously the kind of historical current, but also the future implications um, for democracies and for politics um, when we're being, we're open to our freedom of thought being um, impacted or influenced, shall we say? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the political sphere is really the pointy end. Uh, and it's the, the, the thing where it doesn't even matter if my freedom of thought is not being violated. You know, if my neighbor's freedom of thought is being violated in a way that then affects who is in power in this country, that will affect my future human rights and freedoms as, as well as all of our rights and freedoms. So the impact that you get through the risk of manipulation and the risk of violation of freedom of thought and opinion in the political sphere um, is really magnified. One of the big threats there is about manipulation against human rights themselves. It's about persuading us that we don't need human rights at all. Uh, uh, that human rights are not good for us in some way. And the real danger there is that once we lose our human rights, once we lose our freedom of thought and opinion, we may never get it back. Uh, and we might feel today that we're all fine and comfortable and that we don't need human rights, but it's only when you lose them that you realize how vitally important they are for you, for your family and, and for your whole society. Um, we, we've talked about a lot of the uh, so the politics, the impact on politics and also on um, commercial things. So, for example, you know, micro targeting and advertising and, and so on. But increasingly, these autonomous systems are being developed, you know, machine learning algorithms that are ingesting data, not just to decide who to target or what to show you, but to make other sorts of decisions, both in the public and private sphere. And I'm really interested in looking at how, you know, um, the different areas in which this is replacing sort of human expertise. So I think you, you might have briefly touched on um, in the book, um, criminal justice, for example, as an area, there's also healthcare as an area. Um, what, you know, what are, can we talk a little bit about machine learning and how this is taking it to the next step where, you know, decisions are being made um, based on these things? And can we ever really predict whether someone is going to do something? Is that even, yeah, is that even legal? If you look at it from the framework of the right to freedom of thought? Um, and risks here in, in that sphere? Yeah, it touches on so many different spheres. I mean, the criminal justice sphere is perhaps the most acute because, you know, if a, an algorithm is deciding that you are a high risk individual based on massive troves of data that may have very little to do with you, that might mean that you're not released, if you like, you know, that you don't get parole, that you are incarcerated or that you get tougher treatment in a prison environment. So the criminal justice end is where it's perhaps most acute. But the way that data is being taught to make inferences about us as individuals, whether that is whether you're the right person for a job, are you the kind of person that a company should hire, or for children where you know, they're being monitored in schools and education technology is billed as something to protect child safety uh, and, and very much as a safeguarding tool. But we don't actually know how that information, how those analyses of our children in schools today are going to affect their futures, where that information is going to land up, how it's going to um, how it's going to affect their potential job prospects, their study prospects, their criminal justice prospects. And again, going back to that question of inferences, it doesn't matter if it's right. If this information, if this machine learning 
is being used to make inferences about us that affect our life prospects, then that in itself may well be a violation of our right to freedom of thought. If what's being judged is who we are on the inside, what we're thinking, what our opinions are, it doesn't matter if it's right. The potential for challenging it is extremely difficult because it really is a kind of computer says no. And if the computer says no to you when you want a mortgage, when you want a job, when you want to leave prison, you know, those are really, really serious consequences that we need to look at right now, that we need to work out how we challenge those presumptions. And if there are areas where it should just never be allowed, where those assumptions should not uh, be being used um, to make decisions about us. Yeah, um, I want to ask you about a specific case, a case study, if 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 I may, because um, I'm curious how you would interpret that. But in, in the Netherlands, uh, the Amsterdam government has been had been compiling these lists. They call them top 400 and top 600, and they're lists of children, so minors, um, specifically looking at data related to their own previous. Um, interactions and encounters with the police as well as other data points around their family um, economic educational you know their parents that you know um, whether they've been witness to crime not just victims of um, and so on and then they created these lists for people who they believe were the most likely to commit serious crimes people children rather um, and the top 400 was the list technically of their siblings <laughs> who had never actually been in any trouble with uh, criminal justice at all but were relate were at risk say and the outcome of this would be to get social services involved to sort of uh, as preventative action to kind of try and get them on the right track to intervene with their families etc um, and I'm just you know, curious, obviously, the way it's couched is this is a way to help people before they do anything, help families, help children. Um, but from my reporting, that's really not how it plays out when the government gets involved in, in family life. Um, and I and I wonder, you know, would that, you know, the human rights lawyers could challenge governments about whether that would should even be allowed under freedom of thought, because if you've never actually committed a crime, but to say that you might you know, how does that change the course of a person's life? Absolutely. These cases of predicting criminality, whether it's based on big data, the example that you've used in the sort of pre crime there have been other researchers who've sort of gone back to the age old junk science of physiognomy to say that actually looking at a photograph of a child, we can tell whether or not they're going to be uh, a criminal. And when you look under the hood of these kind of things, they are almost invariably discriminatory. <laughs> they are, you know, almost invariably affecting people in situations of vulnerability uh, and condemning them to a future where they are a crime suspect without actually having done anything. And so, yes, I think freedom of thought is one of the tools that can be used to challenge this. And particularly if you look at freedom of thought combined with the principle of non-discrimination, you know, we are essentially assessing people on their innate criminality, on their, you know, on their inner lives, not on what they're actually doing. And instead of having this, you know, top 400, why on earth are governments not actually just looking at um, vulnerable situations and looking at how to improve 
the situation of people across the board rather than trying to make some sort of individual identification of who is the biggest threat to our society because that is essentially as you say what it ultimately boils down to and I mean the Netherlands um, lost a case actually on the basis of privacy doing something similar with uh, access to social security where the data flagged up the people most likely to be committing um, social security fraud um, and again, it was discriminatory. It was based on random amounts of data that just flag people up as being inherently risky. And that was found to be unlawful um, in the Netherlands courts. And these kind of things, I think, you know, we all want to have safe, happy societies, if you like. And, and, and you can see that there's often a, a drive to find tech solutions. We saw it in the pandemic as well. You know, oh, we can have contact tracing apps. That's going to solve everything. I mean, where are they now? Uh, but there is a, a sort of rush to say we need a technological solution that's going to remove all risk from our lives. I mean, the reality is that being human is a risky business. We have to mitigate risks in some ways. Obviously, you know, wearing a seatbelt is a sensible way to mitigate risk in, in a car. But we can't get rid of all risk. And one of the really dangerous ways that governments go about trying to get rid of risk is by identifying who is the problem uh, and going in to sort of try and fix individuals before they've even done something. And so, yes, I think I think this is a really risky area and something where looking at it from a right to freedom of thought perspective can help to, to understand what's wrong with it. Mm. Um, I think we're nearly running out of time, but I just want to give you like a final opportunity, uh, a final word. Um, the you know the end of your book is this sort of rousing call to arms about now is the time to change, and I wondered if you could just sum up your message. You know what is it that you want people to do, whether that's um, governments or you know lawmakers and or, or regulators. What do you, what do we need to see here and what changes are you kind of are you calling for? I think one of the biggest things, which is not just about freedom of thought, it's much broader than that, but is to recognize the value of human rights law, to respect human rights law, to recognize that we need human rights law to guide our future. What I would then want people to do with human rights law is to put in place laws that restrict private sector development and public sector development, to recognize what directions of travel are a threat to our freedom of thought, and, and to see this as something that we need to protect innovation for the future. And I would ask technologists similarly to embrace this idea, to recognize that it's in all our interests to protect our inner lives. It's in all our interests to protect human creativity and the power for innovation and to come together to make sure that we have the legal frameworks we need to protect that for now and for the future. Well, thank you so much. To those of you watching, I 
really hope that our, our conversation today has given you a window into um, the stories and the insights that you can find in Susie's book, um, which is called Freedom to Think. Um, details of where to get hold of a copy are here in the chat and on the RSA website. Um, you can also stay tuned to the RSA's channels for other events uh, by hitting subscribe on YouTube. Um, well, thank you so much again, Susie. Um, this conversation has been so fascinating. I want to continue it offline uh, once we finish up here. And thanks everyone for watching. Thank you too. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.